Hey, Rarecast listeners, join us for Global Genes Live, a rare patient advocacy unsummit, September 14th to the 25th. This two-week virtual event will feature a variety of interactive and educational events, meetups, workshops, and performances. Whether you're a rare disease veteran or new to the community, we invite you to connect and engage with us and others through interactive activities. To learn more, visit globalgenes.org forward slash live. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Miram Pharmaceuticals is advancing therapies for rare liver diseases. The company is preparing to file an application to seek marketing approval for its lead experimental therapy, Merilixabat, for allergial syndrome, a genetic disorder in which bile accumulates in the liver because of malformations of the bile ducts. We spoke to Chris Peets, president and CEO of Miram, about allergial syndrome, its lead therapeutic, and why the company also hopes to seek approval for the drug in the related rare disorder, progressive familial intrahepatic cholestasis, or PFIC. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to uh, have the chance to talk. We're going to talk about rare liver diseases, Miram Pharmaceuticals, and your lead experimental therapy, Marilixabat. Let's start with allergial syndrome, which is your lead indication. What is allergial syndrome? Yeah, so allergial syndrome uh, is a genetically uh, caused uh, rare cholestatic liver disease, and it's uh, it, in short uh, a mutation that disrupts vascular formation, uh, causes quite a few issues uh, systemically for the children who have it, and the with the liver complications it's driven by insufficient or malformed bile ducts um and bile ducts you know, one of the liver's primary functions is to create bile and manage a lot of uh metabolic and digestive functions uh with creation and regulation of bile being one of them and it flows out of the liver through bile ducts and physically it's just not able to do so properly in allergial syndrome which creates uh, a backup and overload of bile acids systemically. Uh, so these these children, and it's a really devastating disease, and these these children have uh, hyper elevated levels of bile acids throughout their body because of this, because of this improperly formed uh, bile duct structure. Um, so in the in the disease setting, it's a you know progressive liver disease that causes liver damage. Um, and from a quality of life standpoint, has a lot of uh, terrible complications. The elevated bile acid levels lead to a really severe itching, uh, a pruritus that disrupts sleep. Uh, typically, these children won't sleep through the night, uh, which means the family doesn't sleep through the night. Uh, they have nutritional issues and are, are typically um, have failure to thrive and, and growth issues. 
So it's a really complex clinical setting um, and unfortunately often uh, leads to liver transplant before adulthood uh, as one of the ultimately one of the only effective ways currently to address the, the liver disease uh, complications with this, uh, with this mutation. Uh, how are people generally diagnosed? Uh, it happens um, usually quite young. Uh, and so the typical course, and it is a, a bit of a, a you know, challenging journey that families go through to, to get to a definitive diagnosis. Um, a typical course as you talk with families and physicians that um, have been through this is there'll be persistent jaundice um, for after childbirth. And so the, you know, the baby's visibly jaundiced and yellow and eventually will get to a specialist that does a workup. Uh, and in current practice, uh, usually is confirmed with a genetic um, uh, diagnosis, so confirming the genetic mutation. But that can take months uh, to go through that process. Um, and as the children get older, they also present with that puritis that I mentioned. That can drive the diagnosis. Um, and so it, typically they get diagnosed within the first year, but it's uh, a bit of a, a journey through a number of different specialists to, to ultimately get to a, a final diagnosis. How's the condition treated today? Um, not, uh, not that well, frankly. I mean, it's, there, there's not any real satisfactory options available. Uh, for treatment. So uh, you hear physicians talk about a number of off-label agents that they use. And a lot of it's based on evidence um, of these agents in other diseases or in very small studies, uh, anecdotal uh, evidence. Um, so they use agents that are used in other liver diseases like uh, UDCA, which is a bile acid modulator, uh, rifampicin, which can sometimes address some of the puritis. Um, and that's kind of the approach you you hear physicians talk about is they try to address the puritis as much as possible. Um, and antihistamines is another one, anything to help the child sleep, uh, ultimately trying to control the symptoms uh, as long as they can before potentially making a decision to go to a liver transplant. There's one other surgical option that is pursued uh, in a, a smaller number of cases to try to hold off a liver transplant and address the puritis. Uh, and that's a, a biliary diversion procedure where they will actually surgically divert bile externally out of the abdomen. Um, so you know, typically this is in a toddler where you have a stoma and an ostomy uh, to drain bile uh, from the body. It's a, it's a permanent uh, procedure to get the treatment effect, it has to remain in place. So, you know, the, the surgical procedures that are pursued to control the, the puritis are quite extreme uh, to pursue a biliary diversion surgery or a, a liver transplant. Marilixabat is your experimental therapy for allergy syndrome. What is Marilixabat? So, Marilixabat is it's an oral medication. Um, and in these in the pediatric setting, it's just a, a liquid uh, formulation. You think about it, anybody who's um, you know dealt with children's Tylenol. It's it's just as simple as that in terms of what it looks like and the dosing. Um, and it is blocking 
the reabsorption of bile acids in the small intestines. Uh, so it's a minimally absorbed drug. It's not a systemically active agent, which has some significant advantages in the in the profile. And by blocking the bile acid reabsorption that is normally happening five to ten times a day, uh, bile acids are used in digestion and then reabsorbed in the small intestines. By blocking that reabsorption, the bile pool is essentially pushed out of the body. Uh, so bile is pushed into stool, and you can measure reductions in the systemic levels of bile acids uh, in, in patients um, in Merleau-Xabat studies. So it's quite simply just clearing bile acid from the body. Now, what's known about it from clinical studies to date? So Merleau-Xabat has been in a pretty extensive uh, clinical program uh, to date, and over 1,600 uh, subjects treated in different studies. That includes some adults and uh, children in the, in the pediatric program. Uh, what we see pretty consistently uh, across these different settings is you know, the, the signs of the, the mechanism of action and activity that uh, we're hoping to see with uh, blocking the ASBT inhibitor, and that's the uh, actual target for Merleau-Xabat. Uh, and so what results is there's uh, a reduction in cholesterol, uh, and that's from the liver trying to replace the bile that's clearing from the body. There's reductions in the systemic bile acid load uh, for those that have elevated uh, serum bile acid levels. Um, usually there's a, a bit of uh, treatment onset uh, in the first week or two. There's some GI uh, discomfort because of the shift in the bile acid co composition in the uh, colon, and that's all related to the mechanism of action. That means that the drug's doing what we hope it to do and pushing bile acids into the colon. Um, but we don't see that last. So long-term therapy, um, the in some of our studies where we've looked at a placebo versus drug comparison at four months, for example, you really don't, there's no difference that shows up in that data from, uh, from placebo. So we, we know that it is minimally absorbed, so all of this activity is happening in the small intestines and all the signs that it is uh, pushing bile acids out of the body. If all goes well, when might you expect approval? So we have, um, last year was uh, a pretty busy year in conversations with, with regulators and now have mapped out our uh, NDA filing in the U.S., uh, which is uh, going to be happening quite soon. So within um, this quarter, so in the next few months, we're going to initiate a rolling submission for approval based on a phase 2B study of Merleau-Xabat and Allergyl syndrome. Uh, it's a great data set showing a highly significant uh, and, and quite rapid impact on the puritis, on the itching and on the bile acid levels, also showing a, a growth improvement and xanthoma clearance, another issue um, in these in algeal syndrome. Um, and so that rolling submission that we plan to start uh, this quarter would point us towards um, an approval sometime next year, uh, if all goes well, uh, that would be, you know, call it mid-year or in the second half of the year. You're also developing Marilixabat as a treatment for PFIC. What is PFIC and how does it relate to allergial syndrome? 
So PFIC, you know, the, the commonality is that it is also a severe cholestatic a genetically driven disorder uh, presents quite young, has that same uh, really uh, debilitating pruritus uh, and similar clinical consequences of the cholestasis. What's different about it is that the genetic cause of it is is quite distinct and different. So they are very much distinct, different diseases. And in PFIC, it is uh, a recessive a familial disorder, uh, meaning you need two genes uh, passed down to, to have PFIC. It is a disorder with the, the liver transport, the um, bile acid transporters within the liver. So while Allergil syndrome was uh, a structural uh, bile duct uh, uh, issue, so think of it almost like we describe it as the plumbing, issues with the plumbing in the liver, this is uh, at the cellular level that the transporters are not uh, they're malformed or not uh, functional at all. So the bile acids can't actually pass out of the liver where they would normally be um, transported into the gallbladder and eventually the small intestines. So that pathway of bile acids into the digestive tract is disrupted. And you end up with the same hyper-elevated systemic levels of bile acids and these digestive agents uh, at uh, very elevated levels throughout the body causing damage. And where are you in development? So with, with PFIC, um, it's, it's at quite an interesting stage, actually. So we're, we're enrolling a phase three study uh, in a, a number of different subtypes of PFIC. Uh, it's worth noting that the, the term PFIC really encompasses a handful of different identified disorders that affect different cellular transporters in the liver. So when we say PFIC, it is actually a little bit of a, a, a broad term for a handful of distinct diseases. And we're running a phase three study. Um, we also, though, have a very interesting data set from uh, a phase two study that is six years in. Uh, this is some data that we're presenting at the upcoming European Liver Conference that's going to be in August this year, looking at the long-term outcomes out of that study and the the results are are quite striking. So, in the what we have called the indigo phase two study in PFIC types one and PFIC type two, we see in the PFIC type two children there is a response pattern in some of these children of uh, quite dramatic reductions or normalization of their serum bile acid levels. Also, normalization of some of their other this other systemic liver markers that are are tracked uh, to evaluate liver status and liver health. And for the children in the study that had this response years ago, early on in the study, all of them uh, there's seven of them in the study. All of those that had that response are still on study. Uh, when over that time course, you know, a number of children typically would have uh, progressed on to surgery or transplant. Those that had the response have not um, and remain kind of on study with improved pruritus, improved liver function tests. Uh, it's quite a, a striking response profile. And so what we've done is taken that, um, that data and initiated a conversation with uh, the European and U.S. Uh, regulatory agencies. Um, and have had um, 
kind of good feedback in the preliminary interactions. Um, what that means from kind of a path forward is that we are we're actually going to be we're planning to file for approval based on the phase two data in Europe uh, later this year. Uh, so that's kind of a, a procedural steps that we've set in motion that would uh, have us initiating that filing in, in Q4 this year and have a similar discussion uh, coming soon in the U.S. where you know, we'll see if we can actually file for both Allergyl syndrome and PFIC in the same uh, upcoming U.S. filing. So real exciting time for PFIC. Uh, given the amount of data and this, this clear response and uh, transplant-free survival uh, pattern that we're seeing in the phase two data. We're still in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. What effect has this had on development for you? Yeah, um, from, for us as a company, uh, you know, we're able to operate just for the, the team members in the company pretty virtually. So you know, same as many people not in the office uh, and able to continue working on development and research programs virtually where you do see uh, this, this really have an impact is at the uh, research clinical research site level. Uh, and so what we've seen is uh, as uh, the pandemic was really uh, first rolling out earlier this spring, a lot of research centers just closed down to enrolling new patients and focusing on, uh, those that they had already on studies, um, as well as bracing for potential waves of um, uh, infections in the the cities where the centers are. So we we've seen, unfortunately, we've seen a, a slowdown of enrolling of new patients, um, but have come up with uh, a lot of great ways to keep those that are already on study continuing on study. So finding ways to either directly ship the uh, investigational uh, drug directly to the patient, uh, remote visits so they don't have to come into the hospital. You know anything you can do to uh, accommodate the situation where you know people are are scared of coming into major medical centers. Um, so going forward, you know one of the uh, initiatives that we're starting up um, to to try and uh, address this as well as keep getting, uh, allowing access to Merilixabat in an investigational setting is we're launching an expanded access program uh, in the U.S. for uh, allergial syndrome. So it'll be open access uh, for uh, people suffering from allergial syndrome and a lot lighter touch uh, than a clinical study in terms of uh, you know how many visits they would need to have with their physician and you know, some of the the things that typically come with clinical studies typically have a lot more blood draws and uh, data collection, things like that. Uh, and the program we're launching is going to be a lot simpler, in part because you know it's it's hard to um, have so many touch points and interactions uh, during the pandemic. One of the peculiar aspects of the world of rare disease is that most conditions are without an approved therapy, but Often, you'll see multiple candidates in development for a rare condition like PFIC. How does this shape the decisions you make around such things as clinical trials, collaborations, uh, the patient community, and, and pricing? I mean, first and foremost for us, um, you know, we have from our phase two program, you know, really unique data set for 
a, a rare disease uh, development story. And a lot of that comes just from the years of study conduct. Um, so it, what we're focused on from a competitive standpoint and from just the, uh, the patient standpoint is to get Merilixabad approved in these settings as quickly as we can. And that's what's been behind our uh, regulatory interactions over the past couple of years is um, making the case on uh, what we see in these the six years of study conduct uh, with Merilixabad in Algeal syndrome and in PFIC, showing long long term durable responses on uh, you know endpoints that really demonstrate that it's addressing many of the severe issues in these diseases. Um, so taking that data to regulators and, and getting our drugs approved uh, is really the, the primary focus from a competitive standpoint. And as you mentioned, you know, in both allergial syndrome and in PFIC, there are no approved therapies. Uh, and, and being able to take this kind of data set forward uh, for, uh, for regulators, we think will be quite convincing. Chris Peets, CEO of Merrim Pharmaceuticals. Chris, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for making the time. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.